Good morning, folks. It is a gorgeous day outside, and I know you're going to have a gorgeous day today. In fact, what I want you to do is hit stop right now, because if you just woke up, hit stop, because today I want you to create before you consume. Maybe do it tomorrow, because you're already the day's already started, so what the heck. Just do it tomorrow. Create before you consume. That means when you get up in the morning, don't grab your phone right away. Just go create something. Might be your breakfast. Might be a walk. It might be writing in a journal. Whatever it might be, create something. Get your brain creating instead of consuming right away in the morning. I'm telling you, if you do that, you are going to have a new outlook on life and yourself. You are going to become a creator rather than a consumer because you were born an original. So do not die a carbon copy. Now let's get this Tuesday started, folks. Woohoo! It's time to play hard, work hard. Now let's play hard. I never let the joker out my sight. Never went broke on an all or nothing. Never made a bet so out of line. Till I met you and I hit the ground. And I must say, I've never seen so much weakness in one place. It was a 20 inch bicep with no strength. Cause you've been wrapping it around all the wrong things. Uh, and you were singing my praise, saying I'm Todd Royal. I am the co-author of our new book, Ron Stein, Clean Energy Exploitations. And then I'm a, besides being an energy author and an op-ed writer, I'm also an energy consultant. And Ron Stein, you go ahead and go next for our mic level, Jack. Yes, uh, Ron Stein. I'm founder of BTS Advance, and I've attained the uh, title of being an ambassador for energy and infrastructure, a uh, prolific author of Opt-out articles and books. The recent book is Clean Energy Exploitations. Is Todd Royals and I our third book. And energyliteracy.net is our website. Our mission is to provide energy literacy to the public. And energyliteracy.net has our books and our opt-out articles and more information, ways to contact us directly. Well, I appreciate you, too, you joining us today here at the uh, Crude Life so we can talk a little bit about the book and some of the information that you guys have uh, researched and found out of that book. So uh, before we get into the interview, I'd like to talk a little bit about the book itself, how you guys came to write it, uh, kind of the mission behind it. You know, it, was it funded by any, any uh, outside organizations, that sort of thing? <laughs> Um, whichever one you go, go ahead, just talk about the book, the intentions, and how, how the two of you decided to write it together. Well, it's not funded. It's funded by Todd Rowe and myself. <laughs> so, uh, so it's a legitimate yeah. book. It's not a propaganda piece. <laughs> Sorry. No. It's well-researched. It's yeah. got almost a thousand references because anything we say in there, we have a, a reference to go to. The most important fact about today's environmental movement and the clean energy exploitations this book explores is that the United States of America, the largest economy in the history of mankind, representing just 4% of the world's population. We have 330 million versus about 8 billion in the world. We could literally shut down, cease to exist. And the opposite of what you've been told and believe will take place. Simply put, in the United States, every person, animal, anything that causes emissions to harmfully rise could vanish off the face of the earth or even die off. 
and global emissions will still explode in the coming years and decades ahead over the population and economic growth of China, India, and Africa. You know, the book Clean Energy Exploitations helps citizens attain a better understanding that just for the opportunity to generate intermittent electricity that's dependent on weather, the wealthy and healthy countries like Germany, Australia, Britain, and America continue to exploit the most vulnerable people and environments of the world today. You know, while at least 80% of humanity is an amazing statistic, that's more than 6 billion people in the world. They're living on less than $10 a day. And billions are living with little to no access to electricity. And American politicians were pursuing the most expensive ways to generate intermittent electricity. The Asians and Africans, many of them children from poor and less healthy countries, they're being enslaved, they're dying in mines and factories to obtain the exotic minerals and metals required for the green energy technologies just for the construction of EV batteries, solar panels, and wind turbines. You know, I, my point is, how dare we in the healthy and wealthy countries insist that we should limit poor countries' future future access to fossil fuels? You know, cheap, reliable, accessible power and products from fossil fuels are life-saving and one of the best, best ways out of poverty. You know, the poor and less healthy countries like China, India, and Africa, they're desperately in need of affordable, reliable, and continuous, uninterruptible electricity for their billions of residents. I know that's one of the things we've, oh, sorry, I was going to say one of the things we've been chiming for a while is that similar thing where it's interesting how a lot of the officials are so focused on problems of tomorrow where there's no legitimate science behind it and they're ignoring the issues of today. That's just, it's absolutely mind-boggling to me. Um, The other thing I wanted to bring up is what I found interesting about when I was just kind of looking over and reading some of what the work you guys have done. Number one, I wanted to make sure that people understood this is a highly researched book. Um, Number two, you don't use a lot of the same language that a lot of the other people use, and that's why I brought up the propaganda thing, because just one example, you guys use the word exotic minerals instead of rare earth minerals, you know, and so your guys' research, you guys had to come up with your own vernacular and your own terminology. That usually means that that you guys are so into the research, you don't even know what the politicians are saying out there. So I find that, that, but that's, that's a a compliment to you guys. I'm sorry if it didn't come come out that way, but uh, Todd, Todd, talk to me a little bit about what you took away from the book and uh, just, you know, your, your quick takeaway, if you will. Well, this is our third book and we did, you know, we did, our first book was called Energy Made Easy. Our second book was called Green, Just Green Electricity, which really, those two books built on this, which said what I took away is that we really do now not only have blood diamonds, but we now have blood minerals, is that you literally have small children, and I have small children, who are working to get cobalt. So a bunch of wealthy people in Malibu, California, or Berlin, Germany, can feel good about themselves. Um, Really, what I took away from this book is that this is a call for human rights. Uh, Electricity is what I would say is the great human rights struggle of the rest of this century. So 
are we as wealthy Westerners going to feel good, try to feel good about ourselves, but we're going to do it on the back of, let's say, the Ugar Muslims in China right now who are being forced to build solar panels or small, you know, true African children being exploited for cobalt or Russian peasants so they can get nickel. And really well, the big thing for me is I just, I, I always thought of energy as an economic, um, an economic clusters. My work, I've done work for Duke University on economic development. And so what I took away is like, this isn't just an economic issue for crude oil, for solar panels. It's actually human rights. It's the true it's real racism going on here that these people are being horribly exploited. And they're not just rare earth minerals. They are exotic minerals that have to be dug up, mined, transported, and processed. And it's being done on the backs and, frankly, the lives of poor people. So what I took away is this book is really a call to say that we are all equal. We Everybody deserves a shot energy and electricity. And the worst way to do it is by using solar panels, wind turbines, utility scale storage systems, and God knows driving an electric vehicle. And I love a Tesla as much as the next guy. I think they're fabulous cars. But let's not think that you're doing something noble by driving that Tesla when some black child who's five years old is dying in a cobalt mine that's being lifted up by nothing better than a piece of plywood hundreds if not thousands of feet below the ground so yeah i took away this what i thought was going to be a a book on economics and transportation and mining and politics really to me became a book about human rights and equality and are we really going to fight racism are we really going to give people energy and electricity so they can make their lives better one of the things i appreciated about your book was that the human element side of things and i had never thought of it in a comparison to the blood diamond before and i think that's a very good approach uh this is a very difficult discussion because one we can't even get scientists to to agree on something that apparently is a foregone conclusion. Love that word, consensus science. Boy, that's just interesting. I used to have exa- <laughs> I used to have exact science when I grew up, but apparently, if you can get you know four out of five doctors to say Trident is good for you, that's consensus science nowadays. <laughs> so that, that that's a different podcast for a different day. Uh, but I did want to ask you about the aggressive side of things because Blood Diamond, uh, your your cover is um, it's got a AK forty seven or or uh, it's got a gun. On on the cover. So it's very aggressive from that standpoint. Do you find that, that that's a advantage? Do you find that that's put off to people? Do you, do you Does it not come up? And I ask that because I actually wrote a book called Cancer's a Bitch. And I actually am going to re-release another one without the word bitch on it. And it's going to have a whole different cover because... Some people don't like that aggressive side of things. So I, I don't know if you guys are, are, are following me on that or whatever, but I love the message that this is who's guarding your Tesla battery, folks. It's a guy with a big Uzi, AK-47. So talk to me a little bit about that, the blood diamond, the aggressiveness, the cover, and, and just that whole side of things. Well, Ron, you take, you, take it, you take it first and yeah, we'll go next. 
we wanted to tell it like it is. Uh, like I said, we try and put it in layman's terms and just uh, provide the facts. You know, we as Todd was talking about the uh, the atrocities going on in developing countries. You know, Biden wants to get rid of fossil fuels. Well, we can easily observe the world's poorest countries to see what lifestyles are like without fossil fuels. And most importantly, the thousands of products we get from oil derivatives that benefit the richer countries. In those poorer countries, there's 11 million children in the world dying every year. That's atrocious. And those fatalities are from preventable causes of diarrhea, malaria, diphtheria, and it's, it's all, like I say, the developing countries don't have access to the products we have and uh, that's enjoyed by the wealthy and healthy countries. I recently put out an op-ed article. It was a satire and uh, because the population of the world has been pretty level for thousands of years. And then in the late 1800s, 1900, it skyrocketed up. And so the article was basically... Blame oil for the world populating 8 billion people because it would not populate 8 billion people because before 1900, we had no medical industry. We had no communications. We had no transportation. And uh, everything that's, that's happened after, after 1900 has is, is gotten the world to be a huge place. And now that we got 8 billion people, we need the fossil fuels to keep the transportation moving because we're moving food around the world we're growing it one country and moving it to another country it's like say it's 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 amazing so and when Tom was talking about the ev batteries you know the tesla battery weighs a thousand pounds the hummer the macho hummer just came out with the ev version the hummer's battery is 5600 pounds made with lithium and cobalt there's not enough lithium and cobalt in the world to make the billions of batteries that are going to be required. But no one recognizes that. They just, you know, barnstorming ahead. Jason, if I can add on onto that, is that to directly uh, answer the question, is that we felt it was really important to have a cover. that while it, we wanted the cover not just to shock you, but to actually show you the reality. And so if it, we haven't seen thus far that it's put off anybody, if anything, it's been very eye-opening, kind of what you said. You went, wow, I never thought about a blood mineral. We think about a blood diamond. We think about a very you know, famous movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. But, where we, but we never thought that, oh, that, that Tesla, that solar panel, oh, that's on the backs of, of people and they're dying and being abused in civil wars the same way that movie is. So it, it's a tough cover, and we definitely had a debate over it. We definitely thought about it. And it's like, oh my gosh, we've just put somebody up with a gun. And are, are, we, are, are we being um, flamboyant for the sense of, you know, trying to shock you? So, no, it wasn't trying to shock. It was definitely just trying to show here is the actual reality of what's going on. And sometimes we have to show the reality, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly to – get people to begin to think and go, okay, what is this whole clean energy transition? And is it even possible when we're looking at it off the backs of people that we're saying are finally getting racist, you know, equality uh, within, certainly within the U S and Europe, but now we have gun issues as well. And it's like, okay, 
you need to think about this. This isn't just free electricity and energy. So, yeah, we, we definitely had a debate about it, but we felt it was important to put that on the cover. Well, and I, for those people listening out there, this is a human right, rights issue first and foremost. And that's the part I really do enjoy about this book and the fact that it's on the cover to demonstrate this is a human rights issue. And human rights is a very difficult topic. And now we're going to go yes. to the and, and we're going to go to the next next issue next. And I don't even know where to go with it because it's actually a two prong approach. Because you brought up the fifty six hundred pound battery on the Hummer, and you this is a whole new issue of uh, gasoline and road taxes and how those are going to get rectified and justified. And at the end, who's going to actually pick up the cost of everybody driving down the road with a semi? golf cart, basically. It's a golf cart that's heavy as a semi. So number one, we've got the the tax issue, which some states haven't figured this out yet. And some states have no idea how this is going to just impact the roads because of the weight. But then there's the part that uh, of, is this really going down the path of a class, of, of a class issue? Because obviously the cost only, it only appeals to a certain class of individuals. And then to actually have them to be subsidized on top of it, that's a little different. And then to see the new uh, Biden budget or whatever that's called out in the media, I forget, it's the new presidential budget, which has more money dedicated to EV vehicles, getting people EV vehicles, than it does for road repairs and bridges. So it's it's... It's like a fifty. It's like a swarm of bees coming at you. To be honest, it's just there's so many different approaches here. But I don't know which angle you guys want to take. If you want to take the roads and the taxes and the rich, but it's just there's a lot there, guys. Ron, can I go first on this? <laughs> I, I know I know where Ron's going to go. Um, I'm even in addition because Ron's done great work on EVs and this very issue. The, the issue that I always come about is really how Ron and I first met whenever we were working together with the American uh, Society of Civil Engineers. And I was tasked with what would it cost for California to build a new electrical grid? And the, the issue I always take is whether it's road taxes, roads, uh, is, a, is this a class issue? Is that even before you get to those issues, you do not, and we, we talked about it in our book, Just, Just Green Electricity in particular, you do not have the electrical grid if even 25% of the world, or certainly America, decided they wanted to drive EVs. You literally would have not just brownouts, you'd have complete blackouts and you would completely blow up the electrical grid. In other words, it's such a non-starter that right now, Ron has called it, and I'm going to throw it over to him, he's called this a niche market. Like, it's just something that, hey, the average car is about $20,000. The brand new Hummer, I think, starts at $116,000. So, yeah, I always come and go, okay, I don't mean to be the, the wonky, boring guy here, but if you want to do all this, President Biden or the Biden administration, well, let's start to build a new electrical grid, and then let's get into that whole process, which will take, obviously, quite a long time to accomplish to even get enough terawatts of actual electricity that could even handle plugging in 
a hundred million vehicles all at once. So I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw this over to Ron, who's done so much more on this than even I have. Jason, the electric vehicle. When you take a look at the United States, half of all the EVs in the entire country are in California. And statistically, the EVs are driven about 5,000 miles a year. They're not the primary workhorse vehicle to family. And statistics show that the average EV owner is well-educated with one or two degrees, well-compensated. And uh, this is a second vehicle. And it's, like I say, it's, it's not, I, I don't know where the buyers are going to be because they are expensive. I know in California, we're pushing EVs. Uh, the governor wants to ban the sale of gasoline cars. But in California, we have 400,000 miles of roads and we collect $7 billion from fuel taxes. Well, if the gasoline car goes away, that's $7 billion goes away. So where's the replacement? It's going to be the VMT, the vehicle mileage tax. In theory, that's a great concept. You know, let the person using the road pay for the road, vehicle mileage tax. How do you implement that? That's the tough part. You know, who's going to be monitoring my odometer? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there might be a good opportunity for more Russian hackers to, you know, avoid that reading. So, but... Um, no, it, it is a niche market. Um, I know I do a lot of articles on California because of, you know, all the half of them are here. You know, the rest of the country really doesn't care about them. You know, and, uh, yeah, like I say, they're, they're second vehicles. I mean, if you go into uh, Newport Beach, you'll see as many Teslas as you'll see Bentleys and Maseratis because they're not the workhorse vehicle of the family. And, you know, most of the families need a workhorse vehicle to drive 100,000 miles. You know, half of California is either Hispanic or African-American. They don't fit into the economics of affording two cars, you know, a toy car and a, and a workhorse car. So it's, it's going to be tough. And uh, I, like I said, I just don't know. I know all the electric all the vehicle manufacturers are going totally all in, electric vehicles, no hybrids. All electric. And Jason, I, I don't know where the buyers are going to be. Jason, there was an also a really interesting thing that happened. I, I wrote about it about a year and a half ago. Subsidies, you mentioned that as well, were taken away. Denmark, whoops. Subsidies were taken away in... And, um, Sorry, guys, I, uh, I had a disconnection for a second. So as I was saying, subsidies were taken away in Denmark and Alabama. Um, and the moment they were taken away, car sales plummeted. So you could even go, it's not just a conservative liberal issue or, oh, you believe in global warming or, oh, you're a denier. The market said just pure economics, pure macroeconomic supply and demand said, hey, if there's not a subsidy here, we're not willing to purchase this vehicle. And so that was a, that was a big deal. So to kind of get back, you got to answer what you had asked. Yeah. Once you see the subsidies go away, EVs have a hard time penetrating the market. Yeah. The marketplace doesn't become artificial anymore. It becomes legitimate and that, that becomes very difficult. And 
I, I understand the original purpose for subsidies, but I do want the reason I bring up the roads is because the obvious impact and indirect or direct impact of the subsidy is about as subtle as a slap in the face. And the fact that no <laughs> legislators or leadership out there is even having the discussion is is disgusting to me. And I, I did want to bring up the disconnect that's going on because that's very disgusting to me too, is we've got a lot of elected officials out there that are very disconnected from reality. We call it the planet of platitudes in the realm of reality. There are a lot of people living in the planet of platitudes right now. And what I mean by that is back in about 2015, 16, we started noticing the, the Colorado uh, nose wrinkle and look over your shoulder before you mentioned you worked in oil and gas and that sort of stuff. And so we started tracking this a little bit and, and started noticing that, uh, boy, there, there's this real kind of a religious, uh, cultish like a connection with the environment that's really ramping up. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually trained as an altar boy and a Sunday school teacher. I went to a Catholic school. So this to me is like very, I'm very aware of this type of uh, environment. Let's just put it that way. And then when I started seeing the parallels of the Garden of Eden and how easy it is for people to connect, I'm going, oh, this is going to be dangerous. But what we just got done talking about with the blood diamonds and, and that, that's like legitimate human rights. I don't understand how the disconnect can not only be from science, but how the leadership can be so disconnected on the legitimacy of human rights just for this kind of uh, environmental cults uh, religion that's out there that, you know, we, we, we want everything to be clean in our space and that sort of thing. Am I a little too altruistic or a little bit too out there, a little hippy dippy for you guys? But, uh, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. No, no, not, not at all. We... We actually delve into this. One of my chapters did in particular on just the cultist, the cultish ideology behind this, uh, whether it's the Environmental Defense Fund, Friends of the Earth, Sierra Club, Audubon Society. But the sinister part really becomes when you find out that the people behind solar panels, wind turbines, utility scale storage systems, EVs, what Ron and I termed, and we literally would check each other consistently. It was the white male billionaire, Tom Steyer, Bill Gates, um, George Soros, uh, Michael Bloomberg. It really, we would sometimes say to each other, this feels like, I feel like I'm a bad B-movie producer or director right now. But it really is sinister because they don't care because they're making trillions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies and like Ron, like with Ron, he's got a company and Ron has to go compete in the marketplace. Ron's just not getting free taxpayer money the way, let's say, the new infrastructure bill is proposed or this clean energy transition or this net zero movement is. It's really backed by a bunch of white male billionaires with all the parts and components essentially coming from communist China. What we, well, I, I wrote about that in one chapter and then. Ron, what did you write? I remember you wrote some, a, a, a lot as well in your chapters. Yes. One thing I want to mention to Jason, you know, the, the, the title is Clean Energy Exploitations. And the cover, we have a subtitle. And the subtitle is the reason we have that picture. And the yeah. subtitle is Helping Citizens Understand the Environmental and Humanity Abuses 
that supports clean energy. That's that's what we're trying to bring out. But you know, the interesting thing about you know the fact that wealthy people are driving EVs. Um, you know, here in California, EVs are in Newport Beach or in Silicon Valley. Uh, that's it. You don't see them anywhere else. You know, if you have a house that has a convenient place to charge it, that's fine. Or a brand new apartment that has uh, EV charging capabilities. But most people, you know, park in the street and have no way to charge their cars. And even if they could afford them, they're not going to be able to charge them. And if they could afford two cars, then there wouldn't be enough street parking. It's 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 ludicrous. Like you say, I, I'll go back to the original statement. I don't know who the buyers are going to be for these EVs. People can't afford the piece of junk they're driving. Now you want them to buy an expensive EV? In fact, I think most EVs are rented or leased because when the lease is up, that's an interesting thing too. In California, about 20% of the people that lease an EV, when the lease is up, they go back to a gasoline car. So I got a different question for you guys. I mean, I'm, I might be a little naive, but there was a movie in the, uh, I want to say the late 80s called Wall Street and it had to do with uh, insider trading. And that used to be illegal. Is that still illegal or is that, what's, where are we at with that now? Because a lot of this seems to be very much going down that path where it's just the people with the subsidies then can turn around and, and start franchises. And, and I just saw the other day Elon Musk is filing for a, a franchise for burger places at his EV charging station, which cities are building on his behalf. Very different to me. Well, you know, one way to answer that question is, you know, like when Biden has a climate conference, look at who he invites. Politicians and movie stars. I mean, they're all, you know, these people have access to the microphone, and the microphone has a tremendous amount of power. The press believes everything they say, and, uh, you know, they're all caught up on this uh, mission to go green and just totally disrespective of what's what, where the green is coming from. You know, China controls 90% of the materials to go green. And it's interesting, you know, Biden, you know, the United States became oil independent during Trump's era because of the fracking in the Midwest. And we became a net oil exporter. Biden wants to eliminate that. He he shut down the Keystone Pipeline and wants to stop all fracking and all drilling and is doing everything possible to get rid of fossil fuels. But he can't change the lifestyles. We still have airlines. We still have, you know, cruise ships, merchant ships, the military. Military is silent on this. Military cannot exist without fossil fuels. And, you know, the United States can be in a real difficult position because we're going to be relying on Russia and Saudi Arabia for our oil. And to go green like the rich countries want to do, we're totally reliant on China. But you've seen shortages of uh, ships and new cars. Uh, because they're made in China. Yeah, China's going to control everything. And uh, you, you probably ought to sign up for a Chinese language class. <laughs> well, you, and, no, you know, Jason, go ahead. Sorry. Go Jason, ahead. No, Jason, you do see insider trading. Um, absolutely. You may not see it in a financial way that where you can bring in the SEC, the IRS, the Fed, and their enforcement arm 
But what you're seeing is people that are getting taxpayer subsidies for something that doesn't work, whether it's a solar panel, a wind turbine, the whole thing. It doesn't work, but they've kind of made this Faustian bargain between government and between these billionaires, because what you can do, you scare the hell out of people. Hey, this virus is going to kill everything on mankind. Hey, we're warming the earth uncontrollably. And the only thing that's going to solve your problems is wind turbines, solar panels, storage systems, and EVs. And when you look who controls those things, I have incredible admiration for Elon Musk. But his company wasn't, it didn't make a profit for 17 years. He made all of his money off trading, off trading taxpayer dollars to supposedly get rid of carbon when carbon has gone down because of natural gas uh, fired power plants had nothing to do with an EV. So absolutely it's an insider trading game. And then you see what you do is you then scare the hell out of people. You say Republicans are bad. Conservatives are bad. Catholics are bad. If you don't believe in us, then you're bad. Whereas what Ron and I have said in this book and the other two books is you take an all of the above approach. We're not telling you that a that an EV can't work one day, but under current technology, the current price tag, or like Ron just said, the actual weight of of these batteries. I love how you said, Jason. You're driving around, you know, a, a golf cart that's as heavy as a semi. That's a great analogy. So yes, it's a complete insider game that's controlled by the likes of the Bill Gates, then you take places like the Ford Foundation, the Tides Foundation, we talk about this in this book, they all kind of work in consort together. And then what you do, you get yourself a Democratic president, or you get a very sympathetic Republican like a Rick Perry, who started wind turbine uh, electricity in Texas, I think back in 2010. You get all these guys working together. The public, like Ron says, the public has no idea what's going on. And these guys are just making billions of taxpayer dollars. And that is absolutely, in my opinion, the definition of insider trading, the way you just put it, Jason. Well, that's the part that it's like a next level because, you know, here's the thing, whether it's a federal, state, or local, it's been the same story that you go to any town in USA. I just got back from Oklahoma City, Texas, Kansas City, out in Debakin as well. So I put on close to 4,000 miles in the last month and a half, right? So I talked to all kinds of the supply chain, and it's the same story. The same people have been getting the same money and not doing the job they said they're going to do. And what's interesting about this, this is the EV solar wind template, you go back 30 years in the 90s, and the, the milestones that, the, e, that the, the wind turbine companies and the solar companies put on themselves. I've been hearing about the terawatt storage now for 10 years, okay? So <laughs> uh, when, when, when I hear about the milestones they put on themselves, and they didn't hit any of them, oh, let's give yep. them more money then. Oh, really? We've got, okay, so we've started the industrial forest because governments and nonprofits have killed 50% of the trees that they've planted in the last 20 years. So are you telling me a nonprofit gets a million dollars from an oil and gas company and they kill all the trees and you're going to give that person more money? 
Wow, the times have changed. This is beyond an insider trading deal. This is, we got all the yes men in place, so give us your money so we can keep giving it to them until we get our way. That's what it seems like to me, guys. Sorry. Ron, 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 no, Ron has said this before, too. He goes, he goes, people then just, they don't want to know the truth. They shield from the truth because what you do is you scream global warming. And then anybody who goes against that narrative and Ron and I are agnostic about it. We just say, let's just, you know, build dragnet thing. Just, you know, just give me the facts, man. Um, and then you get a guy like Stephen Coonan, who just brings out a book, a former Obama energy official who goes, okay, the earth is warm one degree Celsius in about the last 150 years. That's the approximate what it's done. Well, but then you, is that a bad thing when you say that, okay, we've gone from maybe less than a billion people to 8 billion people because of crude oil, because of all these petroleum derivatives. Okay. Then let's get rid of it. And as Ron's very uh, satirical op-ed just said, okay, then, uh, Hey man, you stop using oil first and you go believe that global warming's killing everything in the world. So yeah, it's, it's a sinister, it's as sinister of anything that we've had. I would counter since World War II. This is as sinister and as far-reaching and all around the globe, these white male billionaires like Michael Bloomberg just cashing in, just making free money, free taxpayer money, and the taxpayers have no idea what's going on right now. Hey, Ron, before you get off, you go off, I'm sorry, because uh, uh, I, I know you're gonna, because you got, t- Todd set you up. Um, I did want to, I did want to ask you about some of the uh, leaders in the industry out there. You know, we, we had API come out, endorse a climate tax, and I haven't heard anybody outside of DEPA, Domesticated Energy Producers of Alliance, and the crude tax, or the crude life come out and say, whoa, this is not a good idea. Um, what, what, what do you make of that, that, you know, API comes out and has a, this, in my opinion, the climate tax, the most important tax in the history of the planet. And there isn't one person in the Oklahoma Petroleum Alliance, the Texas Oil and Gas Council, the North Dakota Council, the Wyoming, none of these guys who get paid to lead the industry have even come out and said, yes, we're for it. No, we're against it. Or holy shit, I got to think about this, guys. Give me a month. I mean, we haven't heard any of that yet. So I I think that is unusual to me. I, I don't get that. So I just wanted to throw that in there as long as we're having a pretty hot potato topic here. Well, it goes back to the basics uh, because everybody is, uh, all the politicians are talking about renewable energy is going to replace fossil fuels. Well, it's not renewable energy. It's only electricity. Wind and solar can only produce electricity. They cannot produce any of the oil derivatives that are making everything else. Electricity by itself cannot support the military, the airlines, the cruise ships, the super tankers, the container shipping, trucking infrastructures, or the space program. You know, nor can electricity alone, especially that generated solar, solely from weather, you know, wind and solar, provide the thousands of products of petroleum that were virtually non-existent before 1900. You know, there was no medical industry, no electronic industry, no communications, transportation, you know, Back in the 1800s, people would normally travel maybe 100 to 200 miles from where they were born. And life expectancy was, you know, probably 30, 
30 years old. You know, today, you know, because like say renewables only wind and solar electricity, electricity can charge your iPhone. It can't make your iPhone. It can run a motor, but it can't make the motor. And, you know, Tesla's, you know, half of the vehicles is plastic, which is made from fossil fuels. But the, the confusion that the politicians have been very successful at is we're going to replace fossil fuels with renewable energy. It's not renewable energy. It's only electricity. And if you go back in history, electricity, you know, go back to the 1900s, electricity came after oil. Because all the pieces and parts that make up solar panels, wind turbines, and electricity generation are made from the oil derivatives. Without the oil derivatives, you don't even have electricity. So the confusion is they're, they're associating renewables as renewable energy. It's not renewable energy. It's so, only electricity. So at how? Best, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. At best, it's intermittent because it depends on the weather. I was going to ask, so how, how do we make the leadership aware of something like that? Because, I mean, what you're talking about is really obvious that, you know, like a five-year-old can understand. And we can't even get, you know, leadership to be able to understand that in order to communicate that to the masses. That, that's, that's the issue that I think is just mind-boggling to me. Jason, I, I don't want to be comical, but I, I'm trying to obtain the exclusive rights for Kool-Aid. <laughs> because everybody's drinking the same Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, that's a different way to say the same people get the same money and get the same results. Yep, that's, a, that's about right. But uh, anyway. Well, exactly. And, and when, anytime they have the climate conferences, they invite the people that believe what they believe. If your views are different, you're not going to get invited. No, no. In fact, and in some cases, they might kind of go out of their way to try to make sure you're not around very long, too, um, in, in various ways. Uh, well, let's. I'm looking at the clock here, uh, just kind of wrapping up here. What What's kind of the message, the takeaway? Obviously, you know, you want people to buy your book, read your book, be educated. But, um, you know, what's the big takeaway that you want people to get from this book? Well, I think the subtitle tells it all. It, it's really helping citizens understand the environmental and humanity abuses that are occurring worldwide to support the clean energy movement of the healthy and wealthy countries. That's that's the message. And it's, uh, you know, the picture on the cover is, you know, I guess the facts of life. And, uh, yeah, there are limitations. And the economics uh, fit into it. You know, like I say, the few that are supporting it are the few that afford it. For me, Jason, um, it's saying that energy, electricity, and this entire possibility of decarbonization, net zero, clean energy transition, uh, zero carbon, all of these energy and electricity euphemisms really comes down to if you have energy and if you have electricity, you're going to have a better way of life. And so if you're doing all of these rare earth, exotic minerals, blood minerals, this is a human rights issue. So I want people to take away from this book that this is a human rights issue we're talking about. This carbon emissions is only a small part. It actually has to do 
with human beings and how do we value life? Do I value a life the same in the, in the Congo, Russia, and China as I do in Malibu, New York, and Paris? That's what I want us to take away, folks to take away from this book. The book is called Clean Energy Exploitations, Helping Citizens Understand the Environmental and Humanity Abuses that Support Clean Energy. It's available at Amazon.com. And is it available anywhere else at this point, guys? It just came out last, like this month. So this is like hot, yeah. white. This is so hot, we call it white hot. <laughs> it's, on, it's on Barnes & Noble. And you can check our website, energyliteracy.net. All three of our books are there. Interrupteds are there. And uh, Jason, just a comical thing. I was playing golf with some guys, and all three of my playing partners had EVs. And they asked what I what I have. And I said, I wouldn't buy an EV. And they asked me why. I said, for ethical reasons. I know where the battery came from. And that's what this book explains, real life batteries coming from. And that's, uh, yeah, I, I would like to have stickers. When I see a Tesla, I want to basically put a sticker on it. I've got a dirty battery. <laughs> so. Well, I, it's good work, guys. And uh, we'll have to have you back and find out how the progress of the book is coming. And maybe after you guys hit your million sale. How's that? Oh, we like how that sounds. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you. Appreciate the time today. Jason, Thank you so much, Jason. You too. Bye-bye. And he was singing that phrase, saying I'm magic. And then you turn back, oh baby, what happened? Cause that was all in the minute I found you. Ready and set, I'm willing to crown you. The music featured on the Play Hard, Work Hard Morning Show this week is by Elma Cook. This is Elma Cook. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. <laughs> Look. The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. Is sponsored in part by Orange Property Management. The origins of Orange Property Management date back to the year 2000 when Fargo native Mike Marcel, an entrepreneur who was living in California, was starting to acquire residential properties in the Bay Area as a little side venture. Fast forward to today, Orange Property Management has grown to 36 full-time employees across 13 communities with a portfolio of over 1,300 residential and commercial units ranging from single-family homes to multi-family apartment Elements. For more information, visit their website, orangeproperties.com. That's orangeproperties.com. The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. Is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. 
It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. That's what love is like that. Who am I that I would push back? Is that the loving thing? You made a bet for me that I here and I get the pleasure of talking with both Steve and Pamela and they're here with Layuna um, which is a laborers union that that helps to represent a lot of different people in many different industries and I was just asking them some different questions about it so that maybe we can all find out a little bit more too um, what so what was it that you just said that it that that stands for Laborers International Union of North America and we are local 563 here in the state of North Dakota well, okay, so I was just asking you how involved that you guys get into the policies. I, I am curious. I hate to just jump right to right to the bigger questions, I guess, but I'm curious how, how involved you get into the different policies within these different industries. It's a huge part of what we do. I am the Director of Governmental Relations and New Business Development. Um, we spend a lot of time talking to industry people. We spend a lot of time um, following the legislative session, which just ended this year. Um, trying to persuade on certain policy issues, trying to actually find ways to pass bills on our own, um, working with an oil and gas. Um, we also work in the coal industry, the wind industry, and the, we are constantly on the forefront with the Public Service Commission, with county commissioners, city leaders, um, and our main focus when it comes to policy is local hire and local workforce. Nice. So, <laughs> so then, are you guys are you guys as excited about the different pieces of legislation that were just uh, put into effect this last session as the legislators themselves are excited about them? Um, well, okay. So there was a couple of different pieces of legislation that uh, were help helping out different coal facilities, right, the coal facilities in the state. There's a couple of pieces of legislation that helps with funding for, for the different parts of the industry, um, especially when it comes to, like, innovation and technology. Uh, gosh. So, I mean, so coal, coal industry has been our bread and butter for many decades. Uh, we love coal, fossil fuel, been, we've done, uh, we help build these uh, power plants out here. We help maintain them, give them outages. We had our members in, in there doing, um, general maintenance and um, other trades also. So we don't want to see it go away, of course. So when it comes to um, uh, the industry getting money to try to make sure they're trying to save it, we're all for that. But at the same time, we're all for the old above also. Uh, just like Pam said, we do help build solar, wind farms, uh, nat gas uh, facilities. So well, we know that's coming and we just want our a foot in the in, in the door right there, but coal will fight for coal just like we fight for wind and etc. 
So one of the biggest things that we're interested in, of course, is the carbon capture project that's going to be happening at Minkota Power. We've worked out at Minkota Power for years. Um, you know, that whole project could be $1.5 billion. And, you know, we realize they're still looking for funding. Um, we've been attending meetings, but it's something that we have some prime contractors that very well could build that facility. So we are going to be tracking it fully. Wow. Yeah, well, that's, it's a big project. I, I am curious, because there's so much going on when it comes to the capture and use of carbon, with the possibility of the Biden administration implementing this climate tax, this carbon tax, how do you think that that might affect it? I mean, what will happen, do you think? With carbon capture? Yeah, do you think that would affect but the programming? The, you know, the Department of Energy um, and different organizations are also putting funding in to try to capture this. Um, you know, even yesterday, Governor Burgum announced by 2030 he wants North Dakota to become carbon neutral. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of pieces. Carbon neutral to us means more renewables, which we are so interested in building. I mean, we build them across the nation. So I, there really hasn't been anything that we've seen yet from the Biden administration that's going to hurt our union at all, specifically because the head of the U.S. Department of Labor is a member of LIUNA. Oh, okay. And so we are um, actually very excited about what's coming down because it will really help our union when it comes yes. to renewables. And not just in North Dakota, just yeah. uh, kind of nationwide here yeah. also. Okay. Uh, every state is going through their trials and tribulations. Um, but with, uh, just like Pam said, with um, Marty Wash being in the Secretary of Labor, he, he's, he's going um, to put a fourth and a light on the union that never been um, lighted before. Yep. So yep. once he does that, we all just try to get together. It's not a union, non-union thing. It just, we just try to help build the United States. Yep, fair enough. So, so you don't think that it'll affect the, the innovations and the technology for the carbon capturing project? I don't think so. I think okay. there's so much okay. that um, is coming down the pipe for carbon capture and for, you know, when the oil industry starts seeing, you know, an uptick again, you know, um, injecting CO2 is going to help with some of these legacy wells in the state. And I just think the innovation will help even nationwide become more carbon neutral. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so, well, so yeah, no, that, that's a unique viewpoint on that. I hadn't heard that yet. Actually, uh, I've, I've been asking because that's, that's one thing that I was very curious about, is about how these different regulations and stuff would affect... Uh, you know what is already being done, which just like Pam has said, uh, with our contractors here in the states uh, is perfectly uh, able to, to to do this uh, carbon capture. You know, with uh, the laborers here, we train to make sure that our laborers are skilled, fully trained and skilled to do this project safely, um, quality wise, uh, and just and just kind of do it so North Dakota. Um, uh, local laborers will get the work right here because if coal happened to go away, we gonna need something to back up. We're gonna need we're, we're gonna need um, another industry to make sure that our coal people who ran the coal plants still live here and still support their families and still be in the industry. Okay, so as I'm looking at all of these different technological advances, and especially with what's already being done with carbon, it seems like we're 
it, it seems very realistic what uh, Governor Bergen was talking about with the carbon yes. neutrality. How close do you think that we are right now to being carbon neutral? I mean, it, do we do we need all of that time? Do you think that he's given us, or are we closer than people think? Well, of course, I, I believe uh, Governor Bergen. That is a deadline, but we can go way before that. Uh, North Dakota has all the uh, correct infrastructure here and the correct tools to become carbon capture. Uh, but we're going to have uh, the people here that's going to fight against it. And we just have to make sure they understand why we're doing it uh, just to kind of save North Dakota or save the industries. So, yes, um, we have the capabilities and it can go sooner. Can it go later? We'll see how technology goes. Okay. Thank you so much. No problem. <laughs> I appreciate it. I like it. It's a man like a chess It's not the loving thing. Why I am bold enough to go there. go Wanna tell you when we next meet? I mean, God willing, that I prayed only for your The music featured on the Play Hard, Work Hard Morning Show this week is by Elma Cook. This is Elma Cook. She would let me stay here for longer, but she knows I got Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. Daylight's getting lower, lower, and lower. The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. It's sponsored in part by Orange Property Management. The origins of Orange Property Management date back to the year 2000 when Fargo native Mike Marcel, an entrepreneur who was living in California, was starting to acquire residential properties in the Bay Area as a little side venture. Fast forward to today, Orange Property Management has grown to 36 full-time employees across 13 communities with a portfolio of over 1,300 residential and commercial units ranging from single-family homes to multi-family apartment Elements. For more information, visit their website, orangeproperties.com. That's orangeproperties.com. The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. Is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now, let's play hard. You remind me that I'm not in control. I'm out of control, man. You know I think that I'm better alone. 
Welcome to the Crude Life Morning Show. Play hard, work hard. Uh, my name is Jason Spies and Ben Holiday, right? Yes, that's right. That's how you pronounce it? Yes. Holiday Law Firm? Well done. Yes, sir. Going off of memory, I was going to write it down, but then I forgot to, <laughs> and I didn't even grab a card, so I apologize on that, so I'm actually sure I get a business card before we go. Now, uh... Talk to me about what you got going on. Holiday Law Firm, right? Yeah, Energy Law Group. Holiday Energy, Energy Law, Law Group. Group. Okay. Uh, first of all, company, give it a plug. We're near the end of the first day, okay. so my questions are going to be kind of uh, half questions and half of uh, <laughs> just losing it. Yeah, some musings. Yeah, I know. You've yeah. been talking to a lot of people. Yeah, and it's end of, end of convention day. Uh, yeah, so we, we do a lot of oil and gas regulatory, a lot of title work. Uh, I'm up here in Bismarck. I gave a talk on natural gas flaring to the uh, Landman Association of North Dakota last night. Just happened to be here during the Wilson Basin Convention, so I stayed in town and check it out. And oh, so you weren't even here for this? No, it was yeah, it was kind of a bonus. Oh, Next I thought you surprise. were speaking here. No, yeah, I'm working my way up to that. Right. So uh, organizers next year, I'm available. <laughs> All right, there you go. And what did you speak on? Uh, so we took the comparison. So I'm in Texas. All our practice spans North Dakota, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, you know, and in some of the Appalachian states. But f- flaring in particular is becoming a big issue in Texas. I mean, we, we're way behind the curve on regulating it, on, you know, we're doing a good job, I think, managing it from an industry perspective. But we could do well to look to North Dakota, places where you guys have gotten out in front of this issue and formed pro-industry workable solutions instead of like in New Mexico where they just had some very non-pro-industry solutions imposed on them, right? And so um, just up talking with the, the landman here and saying, basically, hey, you guys have done a great job and I wish we could all copy what you've done. Okay. Um, did you get a lot of feedback? Uh, good, bad questions, I guess? I think a lot of people are surprised uh, how in front of the curve North Dakota is. I mean, we were talking with uh, Brady from over at the Petroleum Council last night and uh, <clears throat> Reese, who's uh, doing some mineral buying here. And we looked at, the, just on a, on a comparison basis, if you say, well, North Dakota is one of the most responsible producers in the country, and if the United States is probably one of the more tightly controlled oil producing countries in the world that really puts North Dakota at the forefront globally mm-hmm. from a you know ESG perspective and that was like before ESG was cool right you know now it's the big rage and everybody's looking to it so um, really my talk to them was more good job here's how the rest of the world's trying to catch up to you what's interesting about North Dakota is they were going the ESG path and then all of a sudden, in the last legislative session, they introduced a bill to divest themselves from anybody doing any ESG stuff. Really? And it passed. Well, then it got vetoed because the, the, somebody went and talked to the governor and said, you can't do that. Right, huh? it, ch- <laughs> check out what's going to get impacted. Mm-hmm. So then they tabled it, and now they're doing a study to study ESG, and which is comical about that whole thing is what you just said is true. They were going down that path. Mm-hmm. They were the leader. And they didn't even know it. Right. That's what was so funny about it. And that um, Ashley McNamee, she's a former executive from Whiting. She's now with uh, Wilson Alvarez, and she's doing their ESG. Her and I would just talk about how the industry was going that direction. Mm-hmm. A lot of these people were going that direction. If they would just 
figure out. All it takes is just a little transparency. Yeah. That's really all it takes is because Meridian Energy, Meridian Energy Group, sorry, Meridian Energy Group out of uh, uh, Belfield, North Dakota, they're building the Davis Refinery, okay? They're also building the Walton Refinery in Winkler, Texas. Kermit. Kermit's the city? Somewhere around there, yeah. yeah Walton, the names are right. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Winkler County, Walton Refinery, Kermit is the city. Okay, no. I get them. They're all a Muppet in some way. Right, so exactly. I get a, They're all a TV show or a Muppet <laughs> yeah. from the 80s, so I get them mixed up there. But, okay, so Meridian Energy Group has just been leading the path on ESG and the whole environmental movement to the tune to where the minute they turn the power on, they're the cleanest refinery in the world. Mm-hmm. When I interviewed Zia Engineering about some of the, we'll call it ESG now, but he was just talking about the bends of pipes, something as simple as that, how getting rid of certain bends and putting certain bends, they re- they reduce their emissions by 20% or something just ridiculous like that. I just find that to be really cool. And I think that if states like North Dakota or Texas or other states got on board with the transparency side, side and started telling that story, yeah. I think that's all they need to do. I agree. I mean, I mean, you, you need to tell the story to prevent what I'm what I'm concerned about is and this is part of my talk is that I, I put a picture of a big flare stack up, right? So if you see that and you and you don't understand the industry, it becomes like this emotional, guttural response to it. And it doesn't have we don't need to let the issue get there. We need to do things the low hanging fruit like bending pipes differently and uh, you know some of the carbon capture like Mark that was just here with uh, Eco Vapor. Um, it's really low-hanging fruit. It doesn't cost a lot of money, and it's good for the environment. It's good for industry, right? It allows us to keep doing what we're doing, and, and as opposed to getting you know shut down. And I just I would like to see more states again take the North Dakota model. And I mean, you're the leaders. Yeah. Why give up that leadership position? You know? I look at it. There's there's really three or four levels to this whole thing. The first one is is that it's the big picture level. It's the bending of pipes at refineries. Mm-hmm. It's the the new engine that is. 20% less combustion, you know, mm-hmm. that type of thing, or, or, you know, exhaust. Whatever California did for 20 years, you know, with the with the combustible <laughs> exhaust engine. Yeah. They did a great job. California led the way reducing emissions and in, in, um, uh, engines because we would have never seen the mountains otherwise. Mm-hmm. The smog was so bad. You couldn't even see the mountains. Mm-hmm. It was so bad, okay? So when I take a look at a lot of these just innovations that have been done, there's that level that needs to be implemented into the marketplace. And that one is really almost too complicated for most people. It's too much for most people. So you go to the next level, which is the trees. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the, the, the what was the, uh, uh, the flaring. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, the flaring is serious, but actually it's because people can see it. Yeah, that's why they're the, concerned about it. That's why they're concerned about it. Same thing with the trees. Well, plant some trees. Well, that actually is going to make people feel better because they're offsetting does it help? I don't know. Maybe, mm-hmm. but not compared to what a bending of the pipe can do. Yeah. Is, does that make sense? Yeah, it was a step in the right direction. And he said it's, like, it's a less well, there's, intensive there's, from a capital perspective. There's also. some that are actually going to make a big difference right away. And there's other ones that are a little bit more symbolic. Mm-hmm. They make a difference, but it's, it's meatless Monday in the cafeteria. That's great, but really... Is it making that big right, of a are difference? Are you moving the needle, right? Yeah, that type of... Well, you are moving it, but how much, you mm-hmm. know? And so I, I think sometimes we're... 
paying a little bit too much focus on the symbolic ones and not some of the bigger ones, you know, like what, like what you were talking about last night and what North Dakota's leading the way on, what, uh, you know, the Meridian Energy Group and Z is. That's what is going to make the needle move more than anything. Mm-hmm. So that's in my opinion. But And, I, you know, you mentioned California. It's like one of the things we talked about last night was that the World Bank just came out with this statistic called the... Uh, global flaring import, I can't remember the exact name of it, but essentially what they're doing is the same, okay, we talk a lot about the people producing uh, uh, emissions heavy you know, industry, oil and gas. What we don't talk a lot about is, what about the people that aren't producing hydrocarbons that are consuming a lot of hydrocarbons? Well, we need to highlight their risk exposure to this and their contribution to the problem. I mean, if you have seen Narcos, it's one of my favorite shows, right? And they talk a lot about, you know, there's the problems in Colombia, there's the problems in Mexico, but they're really linked to this consumption problem in the United States. And they they talk about how Wow, I told is you, that what that's about? I mean, it's a big, it runs a big thread to it. That's of, fabulous. Of saying, well, you can solve the problem in Mexico, uh, but unless you solve the problem of consumption, yeah. you're never going to stamp out the drug trade. Right? Just even that they would identify that as the root, yeah. right? Is amazing. Cost. Yeah. And okay. so what the what the World Bank's doing is sort of taking that same. I mean, I don't think they took it from Narcos, but they've said if you're California and you've banned oil and gas extraction, great. Where are you getting your oil from? Oh, guess what? You're getting it from Iran, Iraq, uh, Syria, and guess what they're doing? They're you know horrible uh, yeah. emissions uh, operators and actors, and so it's not enough to say I'm not using it. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not producing it. You're contributing to that to that issue if you're pulling in hydrocarbons from those areas. So what they should be doing is saying we need to produce it in California. We need to be pulling it from the Bakken versus pulling it from overseas. And now that there's a statistical measure that can be assigned to places like in either an entire nation or a place like California, they're no longer going to be able to just hide and say, well, we've banned uh, hydraulic fracturing in our state and we've banned flaring and therefore, you know, we have this, I don't know what you call it, morally superior position when in fact, no, you're like in narcos, you're, you're part of the consumption problem. You're, you, you have a skin in the game still, mm-hmm. right? So it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. But I'm, I'm interested to hear about this forest that you're going to plant. Yeah. In, uh, in, uh, so the industrial in between forest. Midland and Odessa. That's a tough place to plant trees. So what, the way we're tackling that, the industrial forest, we're going to have three the first year. First one in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota. Second one in Texas. And the third in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the one in Colorado, or the one in Texas, we're going to, we've identified a couple places between Midland and Odessa, which is the desert. Yeah. Okay. I say. And we have three companies, three service companies that believe recycled frack water will be able to water these trees. Mm-hmm. If we can pull that off. Yeah, that'd be really interesting. That would be amazing a, yeah. because mm-hmm. now... These, once a week, these companies can drop off the recycled frack water and just, and, and we're going to call it a shade park. Yeah, okay. We're going to have the only shade park in the desert. Yeah, I was going to say, you're ready, it's going to be the only clump of trees in that part of the world. <laughs> I have no idea how the locals are going to, well, because keep in mind, like today, I, I um, interviewed uh, Mr. Wiles, the uh, city of Bismarck's forestry person, okay? Mm-hmm. Well, there's issues like weeping willow trees take a lot of nutrients out of the soil, mm-hmm. so farmers don't and like water. them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we're going to introduce trees, we got to talk to the locals, experts, to find out what's native and all this other stuff, right? Probably not too much native in the desert. No, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to think of what kind of tree you would. A bunch even... of sage bush, Joshua trees. I don't know. I mm-hmm. mean, 
but I'm sure something. There was this uh, famous story about they were uh, big growers of honeydew cantaloupe melons. Mm-hmm. And they did have a lot of trees. Like, apparently there's this underbelly story of Texas where when the next generation came in, they didn't live in Texas anymore, so they mm-hmm. didn't water the trees. Mm-hmm. And hundreds of trees died in the Permian. Interesting. Because the the kin, uh-huh. if you will, the, the inheritors, well, they live in other states. Yeah. And so they just have it. For whatever reason. It sounds like everybody that owns something of value in the Permian well, Basin. In North Dakota, that happens where a lot of the mineral owners live outside of state. Right. It's the know? same. Yeah. I would say there's a, a, a large contingent in Midland as well. People what was completely my f- divorced from their assets. My favorite story was where the guy sent out, he had so many mineral owners on this mineral. They actually sent out a letter that said there will be no minerals this year. Because the stamp costs more than what you would get. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, like, believe it. You, you you were going to get 20 cents yeah. after yeah. <laughs> the 400 of you family members right. split this <laughs> one acre of minerals, you know? come to an agreement. I know. <laughs> right? Yeah. He's like, P.S., would you like to sell now? Yeah, exactly. you know, like, yeah. And, and, and I'm, making, I'm making offers. I'm making offers. Well, I think it's really interesting that you're talking about using the recycled frack water. I think that would be, you know, when it works, that will be a good demonstration uh, of the ability to do it. Like, I don't know anybody is making that. Um, I don't know anybody that's done a publicly demonstrable use of frack water. No, it would be national you know? news if right. they did. That's I why I'm, I keep saying, okay, that's why we have three companies. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if the first two can do it. Right. I have absolutely no idea if this can happen. But when I bring it up to any engineer or um, chemist... They all look at me and say, "They say, oh yeah, that can happen." Yeah, they all think it can. I think. I, I think. I mean, I'm not. I'm far from an engineer, but I know we're recycling mud, and you have mud farms and things like that. So I don't know why it wouldn't make sense. So you're down in the Permian. So that yeah. So I'm. I mean, uh, I'm in San Antonio. Oh yeah, San Antonio. A lot sorry. of time out That's there. That's Texas. Yeah. So you're down in Texas. Yeah. Are you in Colorado? So uh, I represent a lot of clients that are in Denver, yeah. and so I, I travel up there. Where are you? Where quarter. are you doing business in? What states and shale plays? I mean, most of our work Oil right plays. now is Permian. Okay, that's um, what I figured. Uh, both in, and it bleeds over into New Mexico. So <laughs> I would say ninety percent of our work's in New Mexico, um, Texas, and a little bit in Eagleford. But I mean, that's that's just where the action is. I was told by somebody a lot smarter than me that I trust a number of years ago. Back when they were talking about the 30-year Bakken play, mm-hmm. that, oh, yeah, the Bakken's going to be booming for 30 years, <laughs> everybody on board. Yeah. <laughs> so when that was going on, uh, somebody said, Jason, the reality is 70% of the oil extraction out of the next 30 years is going to come out of the Permian. Uh-huh. Not Texas, but the Permian. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of New Mexico in there. Uh, I don't think it goes up in Oklahoma, does it? No, no, it's no, just it's in that just western a, corner. A little bit of the uh, eastern side of uh, uh, New Mexico, and then, of course, the right. western side. So I've always remember, I've, I've, I filed that away. Mm-hmm. And as I see the last five years play out, boy, I'm really seeing that. Yep. I'm really seeing that. Even, even if the Biden stuff doesn't happen or it does happen, mm-hmm. it almost seems like the majority is going to happen unless there's some new big discovery. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because I just sat through a, a, a good talk here uh, where they said, well, the core of the, uh, the Bakken, you have only uh, 11,000 locations left or whatever. I heard that same, and again, I'm not a geologist. I don't know about all the subsurface structures, but 
when I was early in my career, I was looking at jobs out in the Permian Basin and I had half the old timers at the time saying, look, Permian Basin's dead, you know, it's, it's been drilled out, you know, the same story I just heard up there. And I had another few uh, old timers, you know, good mentors that said, look, people have been saying that forever. They've been writing the obituary of the Permian and they do it every 20 years and it comes back. And so and you're seeing that in the Permian right now, they're getting technological advances allow us to get to these deeper formations. And I just wonder about that with North Dakota too, where they say, oh, well, it's drilled out. Okay. No, North Dakota is going to be around for 20, 30 years. Right, I think you're okay. going to see the same thing as the Permian. The, the difference is though that um, North Dakota is probably going to have half a dozen operators and that's it. Yeah. That's it. Uh, maybe three. I've heard some people speculate three. Because you're going to consolidate, wow. Well, I mean, look what just happened last week. Yeah. You know, Continental goes and, and buys out, um, what's, what's his uh, company out of Colorado? Yeah, and then Samson. Yeah. Samson. And then QEP gets bought out by Oasis. Mm -hmm. So I believe that's just the start of this summer. This summer is going to be either a bloodbath or a merger session. Mm -hmm. There's going to be all kinds. Well, because now people got money. Right. Last year, nobody had money That's except true. those people with money. Mm -hmm. Now, this year, they got government money. Mm -hmm. So now... And good price. Yeah. And now lumber's going up. Stainless steel's going up. All the goods and services are going up. So people are going to have to figure out how to raise new revenue. Selling assets is going to be one of those reasons. I, I, the, here's the thing with the Bakken. When $100 oil came... They were able to prove and cap all the reserves, okay? And we've got laws in North Dakota, and one of the laws are you have to prove there's oil there. Now, 40, 50 years ago, actually back in the 1950s, we had a, a governor that passed a law, or was behind the law, the North Dakota body, that you have to record all of your core samples mm -hmm. at a library at the University of North Dakota. Isn't that amazing? So the Laird Library, it's called. Because of that library, every oil company knows where every single drop mm -hmm. of oil is in the state. And because $100 oil, they were able to go and punch a hole, show their proof to the state, and then cap it. And now it's just sitting there. And they got 20 to 25 years to go back and drill it. Interesting. So that means it is a 100% price play now. Mm -hmm. Now it's... Oh, when it hits 70 bucks, we can go up to Fortuna. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can go over to Tioga now at 60 bucks. Watford, 40 bucks. Yeah, subsurface mining. Right? There's, there's enough for the core, but that's it. Where the Bakken got slapped or where they got probably some bad PR, somebody forgot to carry the one and uh, the, uh, um, what is that called when they, the decrease, the decline curve, the decline curve was a lot faster than they mm -hmm. thought. I got so many different things going in yeah, my head no and it's the end of the day here. So I apologize <laughs> was that, you know, the, the, the refracts and the decline curve wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And that has not been talked about much. Mm. In fact, I'll, I'll probably get a nasty email from yeah, somebody just we, talking about it. Maybe we'll cut out that last little part. No? Oh, no. We'll, <laughs> no, but it's we'll part amplify of the true story. it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got so many people that come up to me and they thank me for talking about things no one's talking right. about because it needs to get the conversation. We're the only ones talking about the climate tax. Yeah. Everybody's afraid to ask. Mike Summers is going to be here. I'm going to ask him. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask him about it. Well, you need to know. I mean, if it's if it's going to be imposed on us, either through its carbon tax or whatever, right? I mean, Do you know what I want to know? Okay. What? Is API so big that people are afraid of them? I'm serious. And, and I'm, ser I'm totally serious. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, Okay, you're from Texas, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I imagine there's a petroleum council in Texas or an alliance. We have several, yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know any of them that have come out with a statement for or against mm -hmm. the climate tax that the API, the largest lobbyist group that only gets the ear of all the big publications, okay? I don't understand why Texas, that's your state, and I'll use mine, North Dakota mm -hmm. Petroleum Council, Texas Energy yeah. Petroleum Alliance, whatever. Oklahoma Petroleum Alliance, mm -hmm. there we go. Colorado, there, name any state. How their director, who gets paid a handsome salary, how their executive vice president, or I'm sorry, their executive director, their president, their CEO has not come out with a statement that says, we disagree for these reasons, we agree for these reasons, mm -hmm. or we've been fighting this for 10 years, there's been a shift. We need to take some time and uh, evaluate. We'll come back with a comment in two months. Mm -hmm. Or, do you know what I mean? Something to it's at least kick the can. You know, the fact that the, yeah. it's been silence, it worries me. That usually means there's fear. I think that from a Texas perspective, we just had, we just got out of session. So we do a legislative session every two years. Did that it, conclude it, like this it, week? It concluded recently. I don't Probably think they've Friday gone then. to a special, uh, what they call special session. And... Uh, in Texas, the, there's several, but the big ones, it's called Texoga, Texas Oil and Gas Association. That's the one. And um, I know they were heavily involved in some right-of-way legislation and things like that. I would suspect, and I don't know, but I would suspect that they are cleaning up from session, trying to get over it, and they will address it then. And I would be very surprised if they come out in support of it. I mean, API did, but API is really, I'm starting to, Wait a little bit into things that are beyond my scope. API is controlled by, or the big funders are a lot of non-North American companies. They're European right? companies. The European companies, uh, and that's uh, what they. You see Depa right there. Mm -hmm. Well, Depa came out against it. So right. we, us, and Depa were the only two that I know of. And Jerry Simmons, uh, the CEO, <laughs> said API is going to be EPI. Yeah, there you European go. Petroleum. Yeah. And so I think Texoga and these others are going to have a different uh, client base, a different slant on it. And so when they do come out, I would be surprised if there's any alignment with API. I'll go a step further. So we interviewed Mike Renfrow, who's with Blue Boat Sub-C. <laughs> Got to be careful. That's a mouthful, yeah. Right, because you say <laughs> sub-C and you think subsidy. Yeah, yeah. So right. Blue Boat Sub-C. And he's done oil and gas for 29 years. Did a lot of pipe wider, uh, pipeline, underwater pipeline. Most of his stuff was offshore, mm -hmm. 29 years. Well, COVID hits. They didn't change their business at all, except added wind energy projects to the bid. Mm -hmm. So they still bid all the oil and gas projects. They added the wind after six months of not getting any oil and gas work. Mm -hmm. One year after COVID, 80% of their business is wind. Interesting. 20% is oil and gas, and it's decommissioning pipelines in the ocean. Really? So what he said to me, he said, Jason, this problem is much bigger than just my 80%, 20% swing. He goes, every company that we're working for now out in the East Coast Ocean, offshore, mm -hmm. only one is an American company. Mm -hmm. I think it's Dominion. Interesting. Every other one is a European company. Yep. He goes, so if we're shifting our monetary policy and we're shifting our energy policy, he didn't say this, but this is what I heard. Mm -hmm. We're shifting our energy policy. Boy, Europe is really on the forefront. Yeah. Europe's got the driver's seat and it just kind of happened.
It just happens. So I don't know how to process that. I know it's a big one. You know, somebody you should talk to that's really tuned up, and I'm sure would love to come on. A guy named Tom, and it's either Standridge or Sandridge. I can't remember. I can, I can follow up and get you his information. He's out of love Denver. He's okay. a professor uh, there in Denver, and he's studied the, he studied this whole movement, the shift in energy policy. And uh, I went to Denver a few weeks ago and sat through like a two-hour briefing he gave on, on this same issue of the shift in towards renewables and uh, what that looks like. I mean, we're, really, we're heading into sort of no man's land. Like, nobody knows what that means. Nobody knows what does this radical shift towards energy. I, like, I think somebody does. Right, well. And, the reason, and I, I'm not trying to put my tinfoil hat on. And I'm not trying to be a conspiracy. It was actually Sterling, my morning show co-host, who's never worked a day in oil and gas. I mm-hmm. love that outside perspective. He's never worked a day in oil and gas, but he grew up in Dahran, Saudi Arabia. He grew up on an oil base, so he knows more about oil and gas than anybody who's worked in oil and gas. Oh, when he was in elementary school, they had duck and cover drills because the refinery was going to get bombed by the Iranians, okay? Did you go to school in America? Yeah. Did you have fire drills? Yeah. Did yes. you have tornado drills? Yes. Okay. We did too. We had yeah. we even had nuclear drills. Okay. We didn't have so that. So <laughs> I had I had nuclear drills. We had to go to some dirt basement with a boiler in my Catholic church. Yeah. Right? And then we had um, fire drills. And then we had tornado drills, which is my favorite. You put your head under a desk, and apparently that's going to yeah. save you yeah. from a tornado. Whole <laughs> different pod. Yeah. Whole different podcast for a different yeah. day. But I, call, uh, I called Sterling right after, oh, was it about a month or two ago? About a month and a half ago. He sent me this uh, text because that refinery got bombed. Yeah, it happened. It, yeah, it was right yeah. recently. And I said, you know, I went to 18 years or whatever, you know, of school. I can't tell you how many fire drills I had, mm-hmm. how many tornado drills. My school didn't burn down. You actually did get bombed yeah. by I mean, like, that actually happened yeah. at your school. Yeah. Like I, I've never even heard of that. Yeah. Like anybody I know I don't even know anybody's school will burn down yeah. while kids were there. Mm-hmm. Or a tornado that ripped out while kids were there. The refinery got bombed while yeah. people were at school, so it's just <laughs> and that's- So I, I think of that, you know, that Sterling brings in a whole different perspective mm-hmm. and I did forget where I was going at that. What story, does he so. think about the shift towards renewables? Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, I kind of want to talk more about this uh, Saudi experience, but... Well, he, he brings is. such great stories yeah. in, you know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, no, his, his perspective is very interesting because what he sees happening is that he sees that um, a lot of the European companies are coming in. Mm-hmm. He also sees that they're pushing us to public transportation through the EV vehicles. Mm-hmm. Just the cost is not affordable for anybody. And pretty soon gas is going to be eight bucks. Yeah, we can hope. And if people only need to go to work or the market once a week, mm-hmm. well, he's the one who brought that in. So, oh, the European and uh, the tinfoil hat and all these other things. I didn't want to get too much of the tinfoil hat going because some of these conversations, when you start implying things based on what the actions have been, people automatically tinfoil hat you. Right. And all you're trying to do is say, no, I think we need to have a serious talk here yeah. because things have changed way too much out of my my, 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 well, I'll give you an example here. Okay. When I was growing up, got in the media, it was taboo to take a picture with somebody you just interviewed. Really? There is no way you would lower yourself and be some rube 
<laughs> and take a picture with Harold Ham. Right. Absolutely no reason. I would love to take a picture with Harold Ham. Why would you not? Now you <laughs> yeah, do. Right, yeah. Now it's like people want to do that more than the interview. Right, yeah. And so it was different because like... Um, well, people are like selfies were not a thing. Why do you think that? Do you think that's because that would imply you're too close to your subject to your interview, or what do you mean? What, what? I think it had to do a lot with um, act like you've done it before. Oh, okay, you know, it's spi- spiking in the end zone, the yeah. touchdown celebration. You know, okay. my favorite guy is the one who just hands it to the ref. Yeah, yeah, I've scored before. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, instead of woo, look at me, Grandma, yeah. I scored. You know, and <laughs> a lot of that was journalists looked down upon that, mm-hmm. like. What are you doing? Like, you know, and so um, anyway, now it's just different. And so there's a lot of that shift that has happened where people are not used to doing certain things. You know, oil companies are not used to being transparent. Mm -hmm. Oil companies, they're not used to reacting Mm -hmm. and they have been. And now they are. Yeah. And the forest is a way for them to control the narrative because some 16, 18-year-old girl named Greta Thunberg has been kicking their butt. Right. That's what, I mean, that's, yes, and that's in my talks about the flaring issue. I'm going to start talking about the forest. Uh, that's a good, perfect visual example of going on the offense. And offense doesn't mean, it just means putting out your side and not waiting until a Greta Thunberg comes out and then having to refute all the really strong emotional pleas that she makes because then you just look like a bad guy, right? Whereas if you're getting out in front of things and, and educating the public on, I don't know, facts and reality, right? Like associated with the flaring issue or, or how much carbon goes into making a windmill or, okay, we're all going to drive electric vehicles. What does that look like for our grid? Are we going to put windmills and solar panels on every square inch of the earth? I don't know. I mean, that doesn't seem so attractive anymore, right? But uh, the shift is happening so quickly from my perspective that I don't think we're, we're not thinking about those second and third order effects of it, right? Um, I'm sure, yeah, you're seeing the same thing in your in the, the journalism industry as well, the, sh- the radical shifts that... Oh, I, I, I went through this already. Oh, See, yeah, I already went through this. this. Oh, okay. Um, the, I, I watched the farmers get replaced by the grocery store. Okay, mm-hmm. I grew up in ag. Okay. okay. So I, I saw and listened to the farmers complain how people the kids don't understand where the hamburger comes from yeah okay <laughs> it sounds like the oil industry right so, and now the oil industry right. is saying the same thing in fact i believe i'm the one who coined this which mm-hmm. is that most people think that the energy comes from the light switch yes yeah so my phrase has been in the same way <laughs> that the grocery store replaced the farmer yeah. the light switch has replaced the oil and gas yeah. worker and the coal worker too mm-hmm. okay and that's a serious thing. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that body of work is done. When mm-hmm. I got into this industry 10 years ago, the only thing that people talked about was plastic bags, plastic yeah. straws, and an occasional bitch about gas prices. Now you got the president of the United States trying to ban the industry. Right, yeah. That's a 10-year shift, okay? That is a body of work that's been done. Now, getting back to what we were talking about before, okay, there is a pretty big body of work with the trees, so a way that you can connect to bring industry into it is say, listen, we've spent 20 years allowing cities to have full reign to plant trees. Mm-hmm. Environmental groups and nonprofits have had full reign, millions of dollars. Okay, a nonprofit will get a million dollars to go plant 100 trees. Yeah. Okay, over 50% of them have died in the first year. This is a problem. 
industry is going to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to the wheel and fire, industry has been solving problems mm -hmm. since then. How do we get to the place quicker to get our food? Well, let's make a wheel. And yeah. they did. That's industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fire is natural, but it's industry that created fire mm -hmm. once they figured out lightning doesn't strike every yeah, night. Exactly, how to monetize it. Well, outside of lightning, they didn't have any way to do it, right? Mm -hmm. I imagine some communities had an eternal flame going because they didn't know how to start fire. <laughs> I mean, totally serious. Yeah, right? Probably 20 years, somebody's job was to yeah. just guard that flame, <laughs> get a new stick ready and right. get it going, you know? Imagine how important fire was back, mm -hmm. you know, in the dark ages or whatever. So... See how I, I get going on yeah. really long on well, these. In Texas, long. we just saw how important fire was a few weeks ago when we lost all our power, right? I Without mean, yeah. a doubt. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, what this does is this says, okay, industry can build a sustainability shed, which has got water and levels and automatics in it. Yeah, what is a sustainability shed? So, a sustainability talking? shed is a shed basically that has got a water receptacle container, okay, a, a vat. Mm hmm. Either a well or a cistern is going to fill that water. And a basic plunger system from a toilet, a dumbwaiter, mm -hmm. is going to be able to determine when we need to refill up this 80,000-gallon thing of water or whatever the thing is. From, and we have, in the northern parts, you might have to have some insulation and a few things or whatever. Probably not because there's so much water. But either way, the sustainability sheds are going to change depending on the, you know, the, the geography. Yeah. From the sustainability sheds, you have a pipeline network set up, a critical pipeline system to where the water then gets drip line systemed out to the trees. The problem with the planting of the trees, you have to water them every day for three years and then once a week for two years after that. There ain't any nonprofits doing that. Yeah. There ain't any, any follow-up. No, nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. Everybody's getting their Instagram photo and yeah, moving on, right. baby. Yeah. Give me another million bucks. Yeah. So we're going to solve that problem. We're going to use industry to do it industry can build a forest i really believe they can and it'll be very easy to do and we're going to show the world how to do this i read a book on yellowstone by alton chase and he documents the awful atrocities we've done to yellowstone from pumping out raw sewage to almost decimating the coyotes and the wolves and the elk and oh man it's just so when I saw that, I went, we have not been able to figure this out since the Native Americans. Mm -hmm. The Native Americans were the last true, true warriors of the land. Mm -hmm. They would aggressively defend the land like controlled burns. Right. They understood you needed to do a controlled burn. If you did not do a controlled burn, you're going to get death and decay, right? right? Keep piling up. Keep piling up. Well, eventually, no animals are going to go there anymore. Mm -hmm. There's nothing living, nothing to eat. Then the lightning is going to strike. Yep, it's going to burn and it all. because there's so much death and decay and just nonsense there or whatever, it, it gets so hot, it sterilizes the ground. So now you got to wait for a bird to poop on it, wind to blow a seed. you got to wait for a really long nature to take its course mm -hmm. on that. And that's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about what the Native Americans had. When we came to America, that's what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Is We weren't used to that type of uh, nature, if you will. So um, very long-winded way. I, I, as you can see, I'm very passionate about this. Yeah, I, no, I mean, I think <laughs> the same thing. Australia is realizing the same thing with their they're, Aboriginal they're land management. Too. I think the people came in and said, well, <laughs> let me show you what we can do. 
and then proceeded to discard you know a thousand years of knowledge and uh, it did yes yeah, it's not ending well for those the uh, practices gentlemen we were talking to Jerry uh-huh. before we oh, yeah, Jerry, uh, yeah, Jerry um, uh, age range 70 mm-hmm. okay would you say yeah is that fair okay maybe, yes. maybe older <laughs> Uh, he was talking about how he was laughing because this carbon capture is just yeah. what they did 200 years ago and 100 years ago. Yeah. And he, yeah. I'm just laughing it's too. It's coming back. It's cool now. It's cool again. I know. It's like vintage. I was telling yeah. people that. Maybe that's how we should sell it. So, some of this basic uh, engineering, nature's engineering, is now known as the new ESG yeah. movement. I love <laughs> it, man. Because I'm, anyways. But well, how can people get in touch with you? What is the main thing you want people to walk away from? Because I did a lot of talking on yeah, this. Yeah, so no, I hey, apologize. That was fun. This is we're all over place uh i think the main thing i want people to take away from this is just let's be proactive whether it's planting the trees um whether it's esg whether it's flaring which is my little niche you know whatever it is let's let's let's, whatever industry we're in let's be proactive and come up with our own solutions like planting the trees or like doing the flare or a buddy of mine that's working on soil carbon capture so that we can solve the problem instead of having an unworkable solution foisted on us by people that don't have our best interests. You know, whatever your best interest in, in the industry would be, let's solve for that problem versus letting someone come in that, that doesn't really know what they're doing and doesn't really care about your outcomes. Yeah. I know it doesn't make me one of a kind and I came to you at an opportune time And it doesn't mean I'm one of the guys but I'm great for you Came and opened my eyes Still none of us up in the play We don't think enough about the beauty we make It's all work here every day But when the lights go out It's in that I say Sad to be behold Nothing you could do make me go Music featured on the Play Hard, Work Hard Morning Show this week is by Elma Cook. This is Elma Cook. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life Play Hard, Work Hard is sponsored in part by Orange Property Management. The origins of Orange Property Management date back to the year 2000 when Fargo native Mike Marcel, an entrepreneur who was living in California, was starting to acquire residential properties in the Bay Area as a little side venture. Fast forward to today, Orange Property Management has grown to 36 full-time employees across 13 communities with a portfolio of over 1,300 residential and commercial units ranging from single-family homes to multi-family apartment Elements. For more information, visit their website, orangeproperties.com. That's orangeproperties.com. The Crude Life with host Jason Spees. My name is Jason Spees, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer right here on the Crude Life Daily Update. To testify in support of S1076, the Revive Economic Growth and Reclaimed Orphan Wells Act, or the Regrow Act. In April, Senator Lujan and I introduced the Regrow Act, which would deal with the longstanding issue of orphaned wells on state, federal, and tribal lands. Across the country, the 
Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission has documented 56,000 orphaned oil and gas wells, which are abandoned wells in, with no party responsible for cleanup, at least none identified. These wells, which typically predate state regulatory actions aimed at preventing this problem, are at risk of leaking methane, contaminating groundwater, and creating safety risks, while also inhibiting the productivity on agricultural land. As that problem lingered, global energy oversupply resulting from decreased demand due to the pandemic caused major job losses in the oil and gas industry last year. In energy producing states like North Dakota, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Texas, highly skilled energy workers were laid off as production slowed. That combination of orphaned wells which need to be plugged and unemployed workers who need a job is what brings us to the Regrow Act. It's a bold proposal to put nearly $4.7 billion toward plugging every documented orphan well in the country. According to the Bipartisan Policy Center, our bill would support nearly 10,000 jobs per year and contribute roughly $1.3 billion to the annual GDP. In the end, it would have the dual benefit of putting highly skilled workers back on the job while reducing emissions, remediating environmental harm, and putting land back into productivity. To listen to the full length of interview with U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. From the staff here at the Crude Life Daily Update, my name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out the industrial forest. Forest.com. That's the industrialforest.com. Exclusive interview industry news, environmental innovation at thecrudelife.com.
the most trusted voice in energy. On the phone, talking with us today, Chairman Christy Craddock of the Texas Railroad Commission. We are the oil and gas regulator, but we do pipelines and pipeline safety inspections for the state of Texas. We have roughly 470,000 miles of interstate and intrastate pipelines in Texas and roughly another 500,000 miles of gas utilities. We have a lot of pipe in Texas. We're the largest pipe state by a six. It's an important part of what goes on in the state, and safety is is really important, obviously, to all of us. Absolutely. You know, the, the oil and gas industry has always been environmentally focused. I mean, uh, the President Biden's administration, that this is Obama-Biden 2.0 plus. And the rate at which we've seen the executive orders flying off the president's desk is taking America back, taking jobs back, and putting us in a detrimental position. But as the attorneys general for a number of states, we are pushing back. Um, from the Department of Transportation, that Permian, the Permian Basin has some of the um, most deadly roads of anywhere in the country. We average a fatality per day. That is absolutely unacceptable, and we need to do better. Uh, we just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us, and especially you, Jason. Without without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. Welcome back to The Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. I am Sean Forbes with TeamForbes.com and OGDirectory.com. Jason Spies is my co-host today. I went out there on my first rig move, and I was like, wow, I'm permitting all these loads, getting trucks going, load go, and I don't even know what half the stuff was. So when I finally got to go on the rig, I was like, wow, I was amazed. I was truly amazed of how this process is. No, I wasn't expecting any olive branch at all. Uh, the Democrat Party has decided that they don't like oil and natural gas, and uh, they were clear that they're going to go after us. I, I don't think that's any surprise. My name is Jenica, and today we get to talk with Amy Andrzak of the Interstate Natural Gas Association of America. Amy is the president and CEO. How are you doing today? I would say my my interest in this arena started more from an interest in politics and advocacy, more so than an interest specifically in the energy industry. Well, the first the, the first advice that I that I want to give is, ladies, put your clothes on, okay? If you want to be taken seriously, put your clothes on, which that's a whole other podcast topic. 
the funny thing, what I think sometimes is just really ironic. I'll, I we used to pull into the office and I would see some of my colleagues driving electric cars and things like that. And I'm like, how do you work for a large oil and gas company? And you pull in an electric car. So, I mean, even us, I mean, even in our, in our circles, we can see that things are changing. Actually, you are on the money. Back in 2014 and 15, when we first started approaching our management team at Whiting, our reasoning for wanting to engage in ESG is that we had great stories to tell. We all like living the crude life, so... <laughs> Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com.